please remain standing for the reading of our scriptures. Our scripture today is taken from the Gospel of Luke, verses 1 through 23. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it amongst you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question amongst themselves which of them it might be who would do this. May God be pleased with the reading of his word. Please be seated. Have you ever been betrayed? Has someone ever revealed that, that secret confidence of yours? Perhaps the worst case of betrayal, which is far too common, is is having an affair and betraying the trust and love of your partner. Such betrayal is a dagger into the heart. An earthquake that topples one's world into dust, often without recovery. For the anguished soul, it is a dark and turbulent time for crying out to God in pain. And some of you may have experienced such pain and betrayal. But how would you treat that person, that betrayer, if you knew in advance that he or she would betray you? Jesus knew his betrayer beforehand. John Piper wrote, The most spectacular sin that has ever been committed in the history of the world is the brutal murder of Jesus Christ, the morally perfect, infinitely worthy, divine Son of God. 
And probably the most despicable act in the process of this murder was the betrayal of Jesus by one of his closest friends, Judas Iscariot. Judas. The infamous name that will always be linked to betrayal and the highest treachery. The second, 22nd chapter that we started opens up with a look at this man, Judas. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, or the Passover, was approaching. This was one of the three major feasts on the Jewish calendar, together with uh, Sabut, or Pentecost, and Sukkoth, or the uh, tents, being the others. And they all required pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate, Deuteronomy 16, 16. Three times a year, all males must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the Festival of Unleavened Bread, the Festival of Weeks, and the Festival of Tabernacles. Passover was a big deal. It was everyone's ambition to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feast at least once in their lifetime. And last week, if you you saw the sermon, you were here, Okay, I described just how magnificent and otherworldly the temple actually was and how befitting it was to be there to celebrate. There were extensive preparations made for the feast and to accommodate the excessive crowds pouring into the city. Roads were repaved and bridges reinforced and gravestones uh, in the area were whitewashed so that pilgrims would see them and would avoid the, uh, accidentally uh, touching them, becoming ceremonially unclean and not being able to participate. Weeks before, the synagogues began teaching about the true meaning of the Passover. And yet how, how ironic celebrating the Passover, which is celebrating their salvation from slavery, while at the same time the religious leaders are plotting to kill the Savior who brings salvation from slavery to sin. It says, And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, but they were afraid of the people. Now, a few people saw Jesus as Messiah. Most saw him as a prophet of God, and they thronged about him to hear his teachings. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, large crowds followed him. And during that triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the efforts of the religious leaders had not stopped him or diminished his popularity, which threatened, they felt threatened their positions and their influence. In John 12:19, we hear their frustration. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And so they plotted to kill Jesus and Lazarus. But how? They feared that any public arrest would infuriate the people, setting off a riot. Whenever there were feasts held in Jerusalem for pilgrims, Rome would fortify their presence by sending in more soldiers to maintain order. Any riot would meet with iron-fisted violence, and ultimately the religious leaders would be held accountable to the emperor. So arresting Jesus in publicly was, was out of the question. But they needed to get rid of him. 
when they they re- when we read that then that the, they received this this help from Judas to hatch a diabolical scheme. <clears throat> then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. As we've seen in the Job class, those of you who are involved in the Job class, Satan himself is under the sovereignty of God. He cannot do whatever he wants. He had to have God's permission to touch Job. Martin Luther was fond of saying that God has Satan on a leash, allowing limited freedom, but always under his control. When we read Satan entered Judas, most scholars feel it's reading too much into the words to label this as possession. However, we should not underplay that Satan had a strategic role, which shows the the cosmic implications of Jesus' life and death. We also must understand that Judas had to make a decision. Without delving too deeply into the complex subject, it seems that those who were possessed by demons lived lives that must have opened themselves to the devil and ultimate possession. However, as Jesus went around casting out demons from such people, he never held them accountable for their actions while they were possessed. He cast out the demon and restored the individual to family and community. He never took them to task for actions they committed while possessed. However, just a few verses down in verse 22 in our reading today, at the Last Supper, Jesus says, The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. And Matthew adds where it would be better for him if he had not been born. So in Judas's case, he would be held accountable for his actions. At a minimum, this indicates an, an openness, a cooperation, and acceptance of Satan's influence to do evil on Judas's part. Now, Satan is a created being. First as Lucifer, he was an angel, beautiful and powerful, referred to as the son of the morning. But because of pride, he, he rebelled and was, and was powerfully reminded that he was only a created being by his, by his creator who cast him and his lot out of heaven. As a created being, Satan may have a lot of knowledge, But he does not know everything about the future. He is not omniscient. We saw this in the Job class also. Satan challenges God to test Job's uh, faith by allowing Satan to bring major calamity on Job, which would cause Job to curse God. But Satan couldn't foresee that Job would remain steadfast and faithful. And here it appears that, that Satan like all the demons, probably held the same ideas 
as most Jews regarding Messiah. Most Jews, they were looking for a Messiah to come and to be an earthly king and to cast out Rome and restore the golden age of Israel. It makes sense then that Satan understood that belief but was not happy with it. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world that Jesus might be king without the cross if he but worshipped Satan. If Satan did, in fact, acknowledge that that was the mission of Jesus, then what better thing to do than make sure that he was killed and never able to assume kingship? You think about it. If Satan knew that killing Jesus would not keep him dead, but that he would arise on the third day, successfully securing the salvation of all those he died for and seal the fate of Satan and his cohorts to an eternity in hell, Satan would have done everything possible, everything he could to keep Jesus alive. But it appears he didn't know the future and was acting on the common-held but erroneous belief that he came to be an earthly king, a position Satan lusted after. And therefore, for Satan to kill him, he thought that was the answer. So Judas, in collaboration with Satan, met with the religious leaders to plan the betrayal. Money is exchanged. We know from Matthew 26, 14, the amount. One of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. Now, in the Hebrew culture, we learn that 30 pieces of silver was not a lot of money. Of interest is the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah in chapter 11. And there God is castigating the worthless shepherds of Israel And he basically comes to the point that he says to them, I am tired of shepherding you. I'm quitting. And he says, give me my pay. And they give him 30 pieces of silver. And sarcastically, God responds. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the potter at the house of the Lord. And this prophecy finds fulfillment in Judas's actions. And the account continues as Jesus prepares for the uh, Passover. He sends Peter and uh, John, and, and they find this place just as, as he said it would. And they set up to have the Passover meal in the upper room. Now notice how Jesus continues to fulfill the law, continues to fulfill all righteousness by making sure that he observes the Passover. Remember back when in the, his conversation with John the Baptist back in, in Matthew three thirteen. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and 
Do you come to me? And Jesus replied, Let it be so for now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. It was imperative that all righteousness be fulfilled by Christ. It was by living a perfect, sinless life of complete obedience that Christ gained the reward of eternal life for all those who would trust him. This is what the theologians call Christ's act of obedience. Christ, as the last Adam, by his perfect obedience to God's requirement, succeeded in meeting the requirements of the covenant of works where the first Adam had failed. The first Adam, by his failure, plunged humanity and all of creation under corruption. And in Genesis 3, we read God saying, He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. R.C. Sproul notes, When Adam failed to keep the original covenant of works, God did not change his mind. Perfect obedience was still required for our salvation. Jesus came and kept the covenant of works, thereby earning salvation for us. By grace, we who are in Christ are counted righteous and granted the life Adam lost. But this righteousness could not be granted if our Lord had not earned it. So by grace... That perfect obedience of Christ is imputed or put to our account, the account of every believer who are then viewed through the righteousness of Christ alone as having perfectly fulfilled all righteousness and the requirements of the covenant of works. But Christ's obedience also included the cross. The term used for that is passive obedience. By dying as the believer's substitute, Christ endured the penalty for sin and failure, making forgiveness possible and removing the barrier to eternal life. Jesus, who is the last Adam, has opened the gates of paradise, as Revelation 22:14 states, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. So even though Jesus' work here on earth was nearly done, he must still observe the law and the feast as part of his perfect act of obedience just hours before he fulfills his perfect passive obedience on the cross. As Jesus attends the Passover meal, he opens up his heart to his disciples. When the hour came, Jesus said to his apostles reclining at the table, he said, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Excuse me. Jesus eagerly desired to share the meal with his friends. In the Greek, it, it, it portrays intense longing. 
Jesus knew this would be his last meal with his disciples. Perhaps we can liken it to perhaps a soldier's last meal, maybe with his wife and family before going off to war and to battle. There was great emotional attachment to this meal, not only spiritually for what the Passover represented, but emotionally for Christ, who was to become the Passover lamb in a very short time. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks. Take this cup and divide it among you. For I tell you, I not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, the first thing you may have noticed when we read those verses is that Luke mentions two cups. The fact is that Luke, as a Gentile, is actually being more Jewish than the other gospel writers. By the time of Jesus, the Passover Seder tradition included four cups of red wine and, uh, that were taken and one cup that was left untouched for Elijah. <clears throat> In verse 17, seems to be speaking of that first cup, the Kaddish, which begins the Seder. The next cup Jesus drinks is, drinks is probably the third cup, the cup of redemption. It's taken at the end of the meal. But it's important to notice what Jesus says about this cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. What is the new covenant? Well, it's not the old covenant. It's new. Even the old covenant looked forward to new. Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them out of the, by the hand out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And Ezekiel 11, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. The new covenant, as Hebrews 8 states, is a superior covenant that brings fulfillment and closure to the old covenant, the old Mosaic covenant. Christ's shed blood would confirm this new covenant and assure the salvation of all those brought under the blood by the regenerated spirit, regenerating work of the spirit, those who would be born again. No other sacrifice would ever be needed. For in his one sacrifice, atonement has been made once for all time. No sacrifice could ever be more efficient or powerful. So if I might kind of paraphrase what Jesus is driving at here at this meal, communicating to his disciples, he's saying, my sinless life of perfect obedience, I have met the requirements of the covenant of works, the law, 
and gain the reward of eternal life in your place. By my soon-to-be death, symbolized by this cup which represents my blood, I will take upon me your sins and failures at being perfectly obedient and become your substitute in death, that your guilt may be removed and your sins remembered no more. That is the grace of Christ that we remember every time we come around the Lord's table. Having started this section with Judas, we end it with him as well. By the hand, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question amongst themselves which of them it might be or who would do this. Can you imagine what Judas was thinking? I I really can't. According to John's Gospel, which is a much longer presentation of the upper room, Jesus had washed the disciples' feet, which included Judas. Can you imagine that? You know you're going to betray this man, and here he is in perfect, humble service, wiping your feet. I mean, that's, that's indeed divine service. Or that Christ would do it, knowing that Judas is the betrayer. Judas thought his, his devious plan was hidden. But then Jesus shows that he knows exactly what's going on. The betrayer's hand is on the table with me. Elsewhere, the other Gospels have Jesus speaking directly to Judas. What you do, do quickly. John's Gospel adds Jesus saying, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. Jesus quoting Psalm 141.9. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. And Matthew records, And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? Judas must have been shocked realize that Jesus was full aware, fully aware of his treacherous plan of betrayal. And I always found it a little unnerving to hear all the disciples ask, is it I? Is it I? This section of scripture reveals both the, the, the darkest recesses of an unimaginable evil as well as the breathtaking light of love at its sacrificial best. Consider the the darkness. Although it has happened since New Testament times, we've recently been uh, handed a steady diet of popular entertainers who have deconstructed from the faith. 
In older terms, one would say they apostatized or were fallen from grace. Uh, Marty Sampson of Hillsong claims he no longer believes, as does John Steingard of the Christian rock band Hawk Nelson and the online comedians uh, Rhett and Link. Rhett has left Christianity for openness and curiosity. But the problem goes well beyond their own personal epiphany of disbelief. Because they are so popular, they have a vast following of mostly younger people. Nearly half a million viewers on YouTube, whom through the media influenced, are influenced by their actions. You know, we all know that fans tend to imitate their idols. So if their idol makes the case for jettisoning Christianity, many are likely to follow suit without any real thought. Now, at its best, we would hope and pray that such individuals are going through some sort of spiritual desert or perhaps you know, wrestling with, through that dark night of the soul. And in their despair, they have, have gone prodigal, but hopefully, eventually, they will return. But it doesn't seem to be the case. How do we explain it? You might ask, how do we explain Judas Iscariot? He was a man, one of the twelve chosen by our Lord. He lived with Christ and the others for three years. He heard the constant teachings of Christ. He witnessed the amazing miracles of feeding the 5,000, of calming the storm, casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead firsthand, and he himself was involved in some of those miracles. Yet he became the betrayer of the Son of God. How do we explain that? How close he was to Christ, and yet he defected in the worst possible manner. We do have an indication recorded in John 12, 5 and 6, when Jesus was complaining about the woman who was anointing Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. He says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And John records, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas and the other modern examples should serve as a warning to every Christian. You can be so very close to Christ and not even be a Christian. You can walk the walk, you can compose and and sing doctrinally sound and devotionally stirring songs, you can publicly say the right things, but all the while your heart has never been circumcised by the Holy Spirit. Yes, you can be that close, as close as Judas, and yet never experience the new creation through true faith in Christ Jesus. This is why the New Testament writers often call upon believers to examine themselves and their faith as to if it were true. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and 6, Paul writes, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. 
Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. This is not about losing one's faith or salvation. It's about seeing if you truly have faith. The faith that saves, the faith that trusts in Christ alone. 1 John 2:19 specifically states, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Like Judas, these modern individuals left the faith because they never had true faith to begin with. But it's almost impossible to tell those with true faith from those who lack saving faith while professing that they have it. And the only true test of authentic faith seems to be perseverance. The perseverance is not only to run in the race, but to finish the race. That is why Paul so often tells Christians to examine themselves in their so-called professions of faith. Perhaps that is why all the apostles asked Jesus, is it I? But they were safe. Jesus had prayed to the Father. He said, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled, meaning Judas. The dark side of all this is sin. At its most fundamental, all sin is betrayal of God and others. And hence, we are all guilty of betraying our Lord, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One commentator makes this point. This passage is not a history lesson, but a study of human nature at its worst, revealing the form sin takes as it compounds itself in action. How often, for example, has a man or a woman engaged in an affair without considering its devastating effect on their families, especially their children? What do such actions say about the integrity of our vows made before God? Sin usually does not limit its effects to a small sphere. It has a ripple effect that encompasses many others. That was the darkness. But there was also the light of sacrificial love here. Jesus was and is the new covenant. There was a holy uniqueness in his words. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Of all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, none involved human blood. The animal sacrifices could cover sins only. Only this one acceptable sacrifice involving human blood, the precious blood of Christ, could permanently remove sins. 1 Peter 1, 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed 
from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And the purpose of his shedding the blood, Matthew's gospel tells us, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. By his shed blood, we find forgiveness. And having been forgiven of our sins by the shed blood of Christ, all the promises and the blessings of God are secured for us in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. He will lose none of the true believers. And of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.13 proclaims, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Christ testifies that he will lose none of all those the Father has given him to save. And here we read that the Holy Spirit seals our salvation, guaranteeing an inheritance with God as God's possession. For the true believer, it is impossible to deconstruct from the faith because it is the very hand of God that holds, that has sealed, that has promised your salvation. Those who so-called deconstruct and left the faith never had true faith to begin with and were self-deceived. What the blood of Christ covers cannot be undone. 19th century Baptist minister Robert Lowry wrote a hymn that at once captured the simplicity and yet the profundity of the meaning of the shed blood. He wrote, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nought of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Today is the first Sunday of the month. It's Communion Sunday when we usually gather around the communion table here at church. But today we're going to do it different. Today we're going to do it like they did it in the days of Jesus. Due to the numerous New York health restrictions, we'll not be holding communion in the building today. Rather, I'm suggesting that each of you go home, and you who are already home, and hold communion service at home, like they did. Perhaps just before lunch, gather your family around, Get the matzah or the cracker or the juice. 
And then read from today's passage, Luke 22, 14 through 20. And remember with gratitude Christ's love for you. Pray, giving thanks for his broken body and shed blood, then partake and close your service in a prayer of thanksgiving. And rejoice that Christ shed his blood for you. May Christ richly bless you in your communion service today. Send me a text how it goes. We've done this in our home a number of times, and it's it's very moving. Tell me how it went. And don't forget to share your thoughts about the sermon also. And let me remind you, if you are able, uh, the offering plate is in the back, or you can send in your offerings online. Just go to our, our website uh, that we might continue to uh, meet the ch- uh, responsibility, financial responsibilities of the church. We want to thank you in advance for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice in you, and we, Lord, we are just so humbled when we think of Christ's great love, his sacrificial love for us, that he was so willing to go to the cross, Lord, in our place and to suffer and to shed his blood that we might benefit, that we might have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Lord, may that the wonder of that grace never leave or our heart. May we never not be impressed by it and humbled by it. And Lord, as our church family has a communion service at home, Lord, I pray that you would bless them, that it would be a a unique and special time for them. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Just have a couple of announcements I want to mention. Next week, uh, July 19th, we'll be having a special meeting, a business meeting immediately after the service here in the church building. Uh, Members uh, will be voting on one thing, and that is a Uh, David Choi as our new youth leader for the church. Uh, Those of you who are are members, please uh, make an effort to be here. Uh, uh, We're hoping that we'll have a quorum uh, for for that uh, purpose. Jeff? July 19th. Oh, I'm sorry, two weeks. Thank you. What is today? Sixth? Yes, you're right. Thanks, Jeff. Not next week, two weeks, July 19th. Also, uh, next, uh, that following Sunday, uh, July 26th, there will be a five-board meeting uh, here also in the sanctuary after morning service. Those board members uh, uh, who, who uh, feel comfortable coming out, please, uh, please make note of that. And also then, uh, just a reminder that our, the adult Sunday school class on the book of Job uh, continues on Thursday nights. Uh, we're meeting remotely uh, on Zoom, and that's at Thursdays at 7.30. Uh, you can uh, uh, join us uh, there. Any other announcement that needs to be made?